All right, thanks, team. Um, great to be back. Thanks so much for your prayers. Uh, they definitely sustained us over this last couple of weeks with some of the things that we had, uh, had to deal with. So thanks so much. Really appreciate that. Uh, really great to be back. Um, if you remember last week, Tim did a really great job unpacking the cost and the call of discipleship and specifically outlining like the cost of non-discipleship too. Uh, and that we're all disciples of something or some way, that we're all shaped and molded and live for some type of an agenda for the good life. And regard, uh, depending on where that comes from or what it's rooted in, it definitely shapes our life. And so we're doing a little bit of like a going back to move forward, Christopher Nolan um, type. If you haven't seen Tenet yet and you want your brain to bleed, watch that movie. So uh, I'm actually gonna be preaching the text before what Tim preached last week. And then we'll just move forward from there and not do anything else confusing for you over the next several months, okay? Um, so this week, what we're gonna look at is we're actually gonna hear Jesus's first words in the gospel. And that's a big deal. And up until this point, we've had words about Jesus. And now we actually get to hear the first words from Jesus, the first things that Jesus says. We've heard what John has had to say. We've heard what scripture in the Old Testament has had to say about Jesus. Uh, we've heard what God the Father has said about Jesus. But now we actually get to hear what Jesus says. And this, what he is about to say right here in this text, is when you go through the New Testament, when you go through the Gospels, it is by far, not even close, the most um, popular topic, the thing that Jesus speaks about most is what he introduces today in this text. And it is about the kingdom of God. And in one real way, in a real sense, the rest of the gospel of Mark, we see this like real announcement of the kingdom of God in this text. The rest of Mark is really just an unpacking of the effects of the kingdom of God. Okay, so don't, don't just leave it here in these verses because the rest of the book and really in, in a real way, the, all of the gospel biographies of Jesus is really just unpacking and kind of unraveling for us what happens and what life looks like when the kingdom of God is actually showing up and spreading. And this is a huge theme in Mark. Mark is very careful and very intentional in his writings, as you know, as we've seen so far, he's just brilliant in the way that he kind of shapes stuff with words and very artistic in the way that he does that. But what Mark is gonna do for the rest of his gospel is to show us what the arrival of the kingdom of God actually looks like. And actually throughout the gospels, 126 times, we see the kingdom of God spoken about. And the rest of the New Testament, we only see it used about 35 times. So in a real sense, the gospels are the announcement of the outworking of the kingdom of God. It's showing us, putting it kind of out in front of us about what is the impact and effect of the kingdom of God when it is not just kind of ethereally floating around up here, but what it actually looks like when it lands and it is announced and it has come near. And that's what we're gonna see Jesus do right here in verse 14 through 15 of chapter one, watch. So after John was arrested, uh, that word in Greek is delivered, delivered over. And so this is a bit of a foreshadow of how we're gonna see Jesus also delivered over to the coercive powers of the world, right? So John is delivered over. You can read about um, the end of John. Uh, we're gonna see that in a few chapters. But at this point, Jesus now entered into, came into Galilee out of the wilderness, if you remember that, out of the temptation in the desert, proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God saying, and here's the good news. The time is fulfilled, it's now. And the kingdom of God is near, it's at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
All right, now this is very simple. Like, like some of us are so familiar with this. Um, right away, we're like, oh yeah, the gospel, I know the gospel. And then you start filling in what the gospel means. And we do this throughout our membership process, right? If you're coming through our membership process, we ask you, like, what's the gospel? And then sometimes we kind of like, well, we, we like parse out the plan of salvation. And it's like, well, that's good, but we miss the whole Old Testament, right? Uh, does the gospel involve the Old Testament or is it just kind of like over here, the plan of salvation? Or, or someone, we ask, like, what's the gospel? And right away you start talking about the atonement and Jesus' work for us on our behalf on the cross. It's like, yes, but again, like, is it connected to something bigger? Is it, is it just that? Or is that embedded in something larger, right? And right here we see Jesus actually not, not diminishing the significance, but making it far greater than we could imagine. That the gospel is always, I think, a bit bigger then we can quite get our head wrapped around, right? Like the gospel in its macro scope is so large and so big and it is the true story of reality that we're all invited to embed our life in and Jesus starts right there on purpose. His very first words are an announcement of this good news, of this gospel. You notice that he says the time is fulfilled. And in Greek, there's two different words for time. One is uh, chronos, which is time like that thing that tells you when you're supposed to wake up, that time. But the other word in Greek is kairos, which is a special moment in time. That there's an event that has happened that changes everything else that comes after it. And that's the one that Mark uses here. That the time is fulfilled, that something is happening in that moment that is going to change everything and anything that comes after it. It's a special event. It's something that has broken into time, into space-time, into history that is going to change all of history. So it's very significant what Mark is doing here to point us to this. And he says that not only is the event happening, but it's also now available. You caught that, right? Like it's come near. That, that it's actually within reach. That it's at hand, some translations would say. But in order to understand what it is that's at hand, what it is that's within reach, we have to understand that this is connected to a much bigger story that the first century audience would have known very, very well. They would have heard something brand new and now, but they would have understood it on the backdrop of everything that had come before it. And that's one of the disadvantages that we have in 2021 as Gentiles, disconnected by thousands of miles and thousands of years from the original context, but the first century audience would have heard this word gospel and immediately been like, oh wow, that's a big deal. And if you remember the first week of the series, we looked at that a little bit. The idea that the word for gospel is euangelion, right? It's where we kind of get evangel and even um, evangelism. It's an announcement of something. It's an announcement of a military victory or it's an announcement of relief from a famine or um, most, most popularly in that context, it was the announcement of a new king, a new regime. Right? So if there was an oppressive ruler and it was a coercive power regime over the land, there would be a gospel announcement sent out through the land once that fool was removed and there was a new ruler who was actually going to try to bring peace and order across the land. That was the euangelion. And so what's happening here is it's like we got to understand what things were like before we understand the good news announcement and the idea that now a new thing is within reach that a new thing is breaking in, that it, it's, it's actually socio-political and history-making and life-altering event. It affects every facet of human history. And so when we hear gospel, we have to put it in its original context because it's actually not a religious term in the original context. In the original history, it's not a religious or spiritual term. 
So although it has spiritual and religious connotations, of course, we know that on this side of the gospel work of Christ. But we have to understand that the gospel is actually this life-altering event. And in the Old Testament, we see the word gospel used specifically of a herald, an announcer, right? So think like, let's get ready to rumble. Like, it's like something, it's like, whoa, what's rumbling? Like something's about to rumble, right? Like there's an announcement of something. And in the Old Testament, that's what it's used for. The idea that there's a special message getting sent out, embodied by a messenger, right? And getting sent out by an announcer of this thing. And in the Old Testament, we see it used for different things, but, but usually it's for spreading the news of victory, victory over something, the freedom from and liberation from slavery or oppression, freedom for captives, that's euangelion, that's a good news, the defeat of evil, the squashing of a coercive power, and care for those who are disenfranchised. Isaiah is the one who uses it most explicitly throughout the Old Testament to announce that there is a coming day, there is a, a, a euangelion, there is a good news announcement that is going to change everything. And because of this thing that is going to come, it is going to change everything for everyone everywhere. That everyone's going to see this change. It's not just going to be for one culture or one religious group or one geographical location. But that this thing that is about to happen, Isaiah prophesies in the future. He said there's going to come a day where everything is going to change for everyone everywhere. And everyone is going to see it. And everyone's going to know it and everyone's gonna be called to respond to it. Okay, so here's a, here's a little bit of the backdrop for us to understand what Isaiah does in particular. But this good news, this thing that Jesus is announcing, lands in that backdrop, right? So that's the context we find it in. And we have to understand what Jesus is doing here is really cool because Jesus is not only just saying that the good news is announced by him, but he's actually saying that the good news also arrives with him. Right, tracking? Okay, so, so it's announced by him, but not just, right? That was John the Baptist. John the Baptist announced it coming. But Jesus is saying, I'm proclaiming the good news, but that I'm also bringing it because it arrives with me. And that's unique. That there's an availability and presence of the kingdom and reign and rule of God. That, that he's back, that he's here, that he's within reach, that he's at hand, that all of the promises across the Old Testament are coming to a point to pivot in not just what Jesus says, but in who Jesus is and what he's going to do. And if you remember the context, we started and kind of unpacked a little bit of this, the idea of ex the exodus and being in the wilderness and that Mark really takes time to show us that this is like a new exodus, right? But John the Baptist shows up baptizing people in the Jordan, showing us that there's a new crossing from the desert over the Jordan into the promised land, a new exodus. There's going to be a new Passover, that there's going to be a new son of God, a new reign and rule of God present amongst his people. That would have been very significant for the first century audience because they don't have a king, right? They're a religious and cultural minority of Rome. And for 600 years, they've been just sitting on the edge of their seat going like, is God going to make good on the promises that he, he said? Like, is he going to show up? Like, I know what Isaiah said 700 years ago, but like, is he going to do this? And so the Jewish community is sitting and, and there's all sorts of really interesting things leading up to the turn of the millennia where you can hear about all these revolts, all these like so-called so messiahs show up. They're like, I'm the one, right? And then they, they try to go in and then Rome just kills them. And you're like, oh, okay, that didn't work, right? And there's all sorts of expectations of what the kingdom's gonna look like, who's gonna bring it and how it's gonna arrive. And that's the backdrop here because there's so many Old Testament promises about this happening. 
that there will come a day where there will be a restoration of the reign and rule of God. And the Jews are just sitting there waiting for God to make good on hundreds of promises over thousands of years. So you can feel the tension. You can kind of feel the hanging tension in the air. And Mark frames it as an exile, a new exile and a new exodus. There's a new exodus, there's a new baptism, there's a, a, a new highway in the desert that God is gonna like carve out, right? We saw that in Isaiah. There's a return of God's presence and the whole world is gonna see it. Watch what Isaiah says in, in chapter 52, verse six through seven. And you'll see what I'm getting at here. Isaiah is speaking to Israel in exile. And here's what he says. My people will know my name. Therefore, in that day, that day that comes where this event is gonna happen, they will know that it is I who am speaking because here I am. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. That's talking about a herald. Because most of the time you would write a message, a king would write a message, hand it to a herald. This would be like marathon runners before marathons were just like cool, right? But they would run a marathon to get the message across the land, right? They couldn't just text their buddies and be like, Euangelion, right? Like they had to write it on parchment and then run. So that, that's what it is. How beautiful are the feet of the one who can run and deliver this message, Isaiah is saying. Who publishes peace. Who brings good news. That's the gospel of happiness. Who publishes salvation. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. And he continues on and he unpacks that even more. A little bit of homework this week. Go in and enjoy some, some reading from about Isaiah 52 to 61. And you'll see this amazing anticipation now this day that is gonna come where there's gonna be a good news announcement, but not just an announcement, an actual arrival of something that is gonna change everything. And if you notice the language that Isaiah uses here, he's saying to the people in exile, don't worry, God is still king. Don't worry. I know, I know it looks bleak, yeah? Like I know you look around, you're just like, but where is he? But how is he reigning and ruling? God is still king, he's still present. He, he will reign and rule again in ways that you cannot even imagine. Isaiah is saying there's a day that will come. One commentator says that kingdom language in the New Testament is an end of exile language. And I think that's true to what we see in Isaiah that it actually, this kingdom is the um, opposite of exile. Right, This idea of order and peace and justice throughout the land is the opposite of none of that happening. Displacement and no, no actual identity as a people. No messages of good news, only bad news, only oppression, only coercive power over us, right? And Isaiah is actually speaking to the exile saying, don't worry, this is not the end. Now, when we hear kingdom, we gotta be careful here because that's weird. All right, it's strange language, it's archaic. The only time you hear kingdom is if you're a nerd and you read books like that, right? Or you're just like knights and, or it's like the United Kingdom, oh, right, yeah, kings and queens of Narnia or whatever. Like, not that the UK is Narnia, but you're, you're with me. Um, but that's it, we don't, like there's no way, like you say kingdom, like none of us walk around and being like, I'm the manager of Subway. This is my kingdom. This is my domain. I will rule. You're like, no, like this is not how we, how we talk anymore. Right? I don't arrive home, especially on Mother's Day, and be like, I'm home to my kingdom. I will rule this house. Right? Like, just that, this is not how we talk at all. So we got to be careful because sometimes, in, biblically, when we see terms, we fill it with stuff without first understanding how the Bible would fill that term. And we take kind of like modern or postmodern cultural understandings and stuff and we put it in there, okay? So here's what we gotta, gotta see about this word. In English, kingdom, like the Latin suffix of dumb means dominion, right? 
That's the dominion of a king. So the English term almost always means a place, a place where a king is ruling. But biblically, throughout the Old Testament, the word for kingdom and in the New Testament is almost always an action. That's very interesting. Now, those actions have to happen in a place, with me on that, of course, but that's not the emphasis on the right, the emphasis on the right syllable in the Old Testament and New Testament understandings of kingdom. That the kingdom itself is not just a place, it's not actually limited to a place, but it describes more an action and event of the one who actually has power. The one who is actually ruling and reigning. And that's really, really important. So pop quiz, where do you think the first mention in the Bible of reigning and ruling happens. Where do you think it is? Ooh, you guys. Oh, you with your hyperlinking. I've taught you so many hyperlinks. Depending on your translation, it's the very first page of your Bible. Yeah. And we see this, not of God, not described of God, but of who? Men and women, image bearers. That there's something unique about image bearers, that the king, kingdom of God is actually mediated through image bearers of God. And I know we miss this because we do weird stuff and we make a snake talk and we do all sorts of stuff in Genesis that just doesn't, it's not there, right? But, but what the whole story of Genesis is setting up a cosmic royal reign over creation by the God who is king. And if you remember image bearing and the idol, the idea of an idol, it's that kings and gods would put representations of themselves in either their kingdoms or in their temples. That's what's happening. There's a cosmic temple. And right in the middle of this cosmic temple, God puts this beautiful garden ready, just, just like screaming to be cultivated and multiplied. And then what does he do? Well, he gives little kings and queens royal domain over that. And he says to them, as my representatives, as my co-rulers, go and reflect me by protecting this, by ruling over it, by caring for it. And if you remember the first command from the king to his subjects, men and women as image bearers is what? Be fruitful, multiply, and have dominion. Rule over this. Go and cultivate it. That's the subdue. If you think of subdue, of like ah, subduing somebody. Um, no, but it's cultivation. It's go and cultivate this garden. So the idea that the garden is here and it's, it's limited, but the job of image bearers is to go and take whatever God has given us as gifts, whatever garden he's entrusted to you and I, and go and expand that garden. And as that garden expands out, we see, we skip all the way to the end of the story in Revelation, and we see that this garden has grown into this beautiful city, a garden city with the same tree in the middle, with the same river of life flowing through it, right? So you see this amazing idea of when human image bearers do what they were called and meant and designed to do, that there's actually a cultivation, there's a springing forth of life, that the garden in Genesis is pregnant with life and it's just waiting to be tapped into, it's waiting to be mined out and cultivated by image bearers as they go and they obey the king himself. That's what's happening in Genesis. It's amazing. And when we understand that, watch this. Watch Psalm 8. Watch this language about human beings. Verse 3. When I look at your heavens, this is the psalmist reflecting. When I look at everything, I just look. And the work of your fingers, because we can't do this, so you must have done it. The moon and the stars which you put in place. Watch this. What is humanity that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet, watch this, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. That's pretty rad. 
and crowned him, royal language, with glory and honor to make us distinct from the rest of creation. You have given them, what? Dominion, royal term, over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, royal term, sitting on the throne with my feet up, okay? Now, we've done weird stuff with texts like this because we've turned it into, like, prosperity nonsense about, like, oh, we're kings and queens, let's go, and it's like, not at all. Like, if you understand the Bible where you read it, like, you'll see that that's exactly what's happening here. That there's some very, very deeply embedded motifs of royalty that, that we're actually given. And this isn't, like, religious beliefs. This is image-bearing. It's just like, regardless of where you were born, how you were born, what culture you grew up in, what age you grew up in, you are an image-bearer, and your responsibility is to actually cultivate and take this garden, whatever the piece of the garden that God has given you and I, and go and cultivate it and let it spring forth with life. So all the language here in Psalm 8 is just royal language bringing us right back to the garden to say that we are, we've been crowned with glory and honor and dominion and that God's gonna put things under our feet because everything is under his already. Pretty cool, huh? The Bible's not boring. Not at all. This royal kingdom language shows up everywhere and that's what Mark is picking up. That's what Jesus picks up. That's the backdrop of everything Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God. So when Jesus shows up, and he shows up as the image of the invisible God, what is he saying? Well, that he is the representative. He is the royal representative who is not gonna fail like we fail. He is only going to do things that will lead to the cultivation of life. He's, the only, he's going to be the one that takes everything that teems with life, that has the potential of life, and that he's gonna tap into everything and make it life. That as the imprint of God's very nature and the Messiah and the Son of God, that he marks a brand new creation. That he marks a brand new way of being human. Are you with me on that? That he is the true image bearer. That he is the true human being in the fullest sense of the term. And that's the backdrop of the kingdom of God. So when we see this and we understand this, then we just sit with the biblical parsing out of the kingdom we see that this is a new exodus, that there's a new event happening. But in Jesus's day and in ours, there's lots of opinions about what it's supposed to look like. There's lots of opinions about how it's supposed to happen. And this is why I think Jesus is so intentional about like going, the kingdom of God is like, and he tells us what it's like, because if he doesn't, we're gonna come up with things that we think it's like, right? Or we're gonna fill in the gap of what we want it to look like. And all throughout the New Testament, this is gonna help you as you read now because this helps us understand some of Jesus's confrontations with the Pharisees, with the Sadducees, with the political zealots, with the Romans, and with Jesus's own disciples. He's correcting them all over the place, all the time. They have an idea of what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. They have an idea of what it's actually supposed to look like. And the Jewish community at large, for most of them, would have had a similar idea but they would have definitely had a different view of how it's supposed to take place. Most people in that setting would have saw the kingdom of God as meaning military victory, the expelling of the Romans from power, controlling the halls of power and culture, winning the moral majority, and a launch of a national and global regime through the Messiah. That was what they would have taken all the texts to mean. And Jesus shows up and he says both yes and no. <laughs> Right, he shows up and he takes all the expectations of what it's supposed to look like and he says yes to some, confirms some of those things. He says no to others by just completely being like, you're way off. And then he defines the kingdom of God fresh. 
He almost gives it a bit of a subversive fulfillment. There's something so upside down and unexpected about the way that he comes and talks about the kingdom and the way that he claims to embody it. So many things about Jesus leave question marks over people's heads about what in the world kind of king is this? We'll see it in a few uh, chapters or like a few years when we get to Mark 10. But in Mark 10, we'll see when James and John show up and they ask Jesus, all right, Jesus, so when you boot Rome out, like, can we sit like at, at your right and your left? Would that be cool? Could we be your number two, right? And Jesus' answer is like so loving and gentle, but he's like, no, 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 like you, you have no idea what you're talking about. He's like, you have no idea what you're asking for, he says to them. Like, you don't even, you can't do what I'm about to do. You can't go through the crucifixion like I'm supposed to go through it. You can't go and take the cup and drink of the cup that I'm about to go drink. Like, you, you don't even know what you're asking for, sweetheart, you know? Just like, that's like a moment of like, come on, Scooter. And he like taps them on the head, gives them a little butt tap. And he says, like, go on your way, James and John, right? Like, and then he says to them, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So they're already thrown off. They're like, that doesn't make any sense. All right, right? And you see them puzzled all the way through the gospels they, until the point where Peter's like, no, Jesus, I'm gonna tell you what you're, what you're gonna do. You're not gonna be crucified. How dare you? And then he gets called Satan that day. So bad day for Peter, right? Like very strange. Like there's this weird tension because they already have expectations of what the kingdom of God should look like, how it should show up. And Jesus corrects them over and over and over again. Another one of my favorites, really quickly, is in Luke 17, when the Pharisees show up and ask Jesus straight up, hey, so how is the kingdom gonna show up? And Jesus does very Jesus-y type answer, right? But he says, he kind of answers them, but doesn't, right? He says, well, the kingdom of God is not coming in the ways that can be observed, for behold, the kingdom is in your midst. And the Pharisees are like, right? the, king, the, the Pharisees are like, yeah, but we don't like that answer. Like we want the answer of this because like, we, we do theology. We need a really like black and white answer, right? And Jesus doesn't give it to him. He doesn't play, he doesn't play that game. And what we actually th see throughout the gospel is that Jesus actually waits until the night before his arrest and betrayal and crucifixion. And he shows them what the kingdom of God is gonna look like, how? Through the Passover. And that shows us a new exodus. And that he is saying a brand new thing is gonna happen. This is a brand new vision of the kingdom. And he waits all the way to the end. And what's really crazy is that Jesus only lasts three years before Rome comes and tries to squash him out. Remember that. Like, remember like all the way through, he's like, don't tell anybody yet, right? <laughs> right? And then he finally says, okay, fine, I'm gonna proclaim this from the mountaintops. And here it is. And he only lasts three years before Rome's like, we gotta get rid of this cat. Right? Because there's something really, really offensive, something really, really threatening to the powers that be if a new kingdom is coming. If this is going to change everything, that means it's going to change everything, bottom to top, grassroots out, that a new garden is going to get planted and it's going to take over everything. And Rome wants none, nothing to do with it, right? So Jesus actually waits and he, he, he pins it on the Passover at his last supper. Now today, I think we can be honest as well that some of us have different ideas of what the kingdom should look like and we have tension of like, ah, oh, but it is and I want it to look like this and I want it to show up like this. I think there's two probably most common ideas that we, we think of the kingdom and, we, and we, 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 we think of immediately, it kind of floods our mind. The first is that the kingdom of God is heaven. Many people say, what's the kingdom of God? It's like, well, it's up there and it's out there. You know, like it's the kingdom of heaven. Now, why that, why that confusion has been introduced is we can thank Matthew for that is that what Matthew does, instead of using kingdom of God, he uses, says kingdom of heaven all throughout his gospel. And in our Western sensibilities, we've designed heaven for this post-mortem place that we go to when we die. 
That would not have been the cosmology of anyone in the first century at all. That's not how they would have understood heaven at all. So when Matthew shows up and calls it the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God, they would have understood that. But we kind of start doing this thing of like, well, if the kingdom of God is like the kingdom of heaven, then it's, it's spiritual and it's in the future, right? It's like an afterlife where I go there. It's not fully here because it's kind of out there and I'm gonna go there one day, but then one day it's gonna come here. And you're like, yeah, it makes sense, cool. <laughs> like what, right? So we get all discombobulated there. And this view kind of makes the kingdom somewhere else in some time else. So it loses some of the already-ness that Jesus is getting at here. And this is actually not the main way that the Bible speaks of heaven. This is just a side note for us. Heaven is always spoken about as God's space. Anytime heaven is used, it's God's space. It's, it's, when heaven is used, it's, it's, it's a space where God's rule and reign is always done. It's a space where there's no competing versions of power and authority, no jarring for who's gonna be the boss, no different agendas of what's right and good and true and beautiful. That's how scripture tends to use heaven. And then it compares that with what? Well, earth. Why? Well, because earth space is the opposite of that. You with me on that? That earth space, all the brokenness and all the disorder and all the, the messiness of life here on earth, it's because we have fighting and, and different opinions of, and definitions and agendas for what's right and good. We have different people jarring for power. That's earth space. We have competing agendas for who should actually be in charge, who rules and reigns. So that's usually what it does. And so what happens is when we talk about the kingdom of heaven like that, as only later or spiritual, it doesn't take seriously the real life, social, political, systemic, cultural and relational implications of the kingdom here and now. And so we just want to move away from that a little bit if we're sitting on that edge of the extreme. And this is actually why Jesus says the kingdom is not, not of this world. In the Greek, it's really clear. English doesn't help us here. He's not saying it's not of this world like it's not here. In the Greek, it means it's not from this world. It's made very clear in the Greek that it's qualitatively different than anything we know here on earth. It's come from heaven. It's reaching into heaven and pulling the reign and rule of God, a God space where God is reigning and ruling, where his will is always done, and we're pulling it into earth where it's not. Make sense? That's what's happening there, okay? And the second idea of the kingdom of God is that we usually sometimes, uh, we go to the other side where we have a very specific idea of in our cultural moment, in our context, what it should look like at a national level, at a social level, and at a political level. This really helps because it gives us the real world kingdom aspect of it. It doesn't just make it spiritual someplace else or somewhere else, but it like really tries to seriously think through the, the real life implications. But sometimes a specific agenda can get us a little far away from how Jesus actually speaks about the impact of the kingdom. And so whether that's like a left-leaning version, an agenda for good and right and true, or a right-leaning version of policies and an agenda of what's good and right and true, or a definition of how we bring about social and cultural change, we have to be careful not to allow those agendas to replace how Jesus spoke about the impact and influence of the kingdom of God. Now, the question, does the kingdom of God impact social and political realities of our life? Well, better, <laughs> right? Like Jesus is Lord is a radical political statement. So it better, but now how it does that and by whom 
it actually spreads are very complex questions and requires serious answers, like us slowing down a little bit, not getting kind of caught in the outrage of things and like actually being good conversation partners as kingdom people and having real conversations, even with the global community and trying to understand that it actually depends on the context we find ourselves in. The kingdom of God might look very different in Argentina today than it does for us right here. And so we gotta be very careful and gentle and loving and be good listeners in the process of how do we parse out what the kingdom of God looks like in its socio-political ness, okay? With me on that? What's very interesting too is that Jesus actually says very little directly about the burning political questions of his day. That's interesting. Doesn't address very many of them. He doesn't actually address freedom from Roman occupation. He doesn't directly address the corrupt taxation system that is crazy, by the way, in Rome. He doesn't even talk through like poverty and economic policies at all. But what he does do, what he does do, is he does lay out alternative agendas for personal, social, and political change, but always secondary to the subversiveness of the kingdom of God. So that's an important tension to understand. Richard Bauckham, New Testament scholar, sums it up like this. It'll be up here. Watch this. Jesus' vision of God's rule was not of a Jewish state liberated from Roman rule, but of a society formed by the experience of God's healing and forgiving grace, sustained by God's fatherly provision, inclusive of all those who tend to be left out or pushed to the margins of society, characterized not by domination, but by mutual service, and in which all status and privilege are replaced by brotherly, sisterly, and motherly, happy Mother's Day, relationships or loving mutuality. Great word, use that one this week. This is not at all to say that it was non-political, okay? That's very, very important. But it differed from the most popular Jewish political options of his time. Okay, I think that's well put from someone way smarter than me. So what this looks like for us is that the presence of God in the kingdom of God, through the work of the gospel in Jesus Christ, definitely has real social and political effects. But Jesus made the point over and over again to show us that his kingdom looked very different than almost all the political options of his day. And so we can take that and go into our political and social environments and look and say, what is the delivery system of the kingdom of God today, right here, right now? It's not just spiritual or out there or someplace later, but it's here and now. And then what is the right delivery system of the work of the kingdom of God? I think those are just two examples. Some of you may have other like tendencies when you think about the kingdom of God, but I think those are two real ones that we tend to think through. It's like heaven always out there, or it's like right here, right now, this is what we gotta do, okay? And it captures this tension and Jesus speaks to this. Watch what he says. He says that the kingdom is at hand, it's within reach, but that it's available, not yet fully arrived. You see that? And this is called inaugurated eschatology. Say that one. Inaugurated eschatology. Save that for when we have cocktail parties again. You can just be like, how is COVID for you? And it's like, well, you just, we just learned about inaugurated eschatology. It's the kingdom of God, right? Kings and queens of Narnia, yeah. Inaugurated eschatology, meaning it's available, but it's not yet fully arrived. Meaning that it is now, but it's also not yet that we actually live between the times, a time between the times. And what we experience about the kingdom of God, it's real, but it's not yet fully realized. 
That's the tension that Jesus speaks to. That's how he speaks of the kingdom of God. That's how he continues to actually embody the kingdom of God, to show us a foretaste of what he's actually doing. He's not just relegating it to the future, saying it's gonna happen. He's pulling the future into the present and saying it's beginning to happen. Okay, with, with me on that? So think about it this way. Like when a couple gets engaged, it's like, well, they're not yet married, but they're already given over to each other, right? There's an already not yetness there. Pregnancy, same thing. The baby is very real and very there and very present, yet has not quite fully arrived. And then when it does, cries a lot and changes our whole idea of kingdom rule and reign, right? Happy Mother's Day again. <laughs> but see that, that, that idea, it's not just simply hope for the future or a utopian pipe dream for something that might happen, but that it's already present, it's already available, that this is real hope breaking into the present. And we gotta be careful to hold the tension of the already-ness and the not-yet-ness. And I think the more that we actually slow down and think deeply about this is the more that we'll actually feel at peace in any cultural moment that we find ourselves. That we won't tend to kind of just like freak out and get a little bit more, like start to think like, God, maybe you're not on the throne. Like, what, we gotta force this. Like, we gotta go, right? Like, or others have just like sit around, do nothing and be like, I'm going to heaven one day, right? Like, if we hold the already-ness and the not-yet-ness together as Jesus does, I think that we actually end up far more effective. And it's in that that we actually experience some of the power of the kingdom of God that we can miss if we have an over-realized vision of the kingdom or an under-realized one. Okay, this is really important stuff. John Stott, great late uh, preacher, sums up the already not yetness like this. It'll be up here for you. Watch this. The not yet means more charity in non-essential, meaning secondary issues, more humility in dialogue and tolerance and openness in areas of disagreement. The already means more confidence that anyone can be changed, that any enslaving habit can be overcome. Some of you need to hear that. The not yet means more patience and understanding with growing persons. The already means that Christians can expect to use God's power to change real social conditions and communities. But the not yet means that Christians will not trust any political or social agenda to bring about full righteousness here on earth. In general, those who believe that the kingdom is only not yet will be extremely pessimistic and negative about change in people, the church, and society. But the other side of that, those who believe that the kingdom is already here will be overtly optimistic and naive about the possibility of revival, change, and transformation. I think that's a prophetic voice for us to hear today. And that definitely speaks into some of the tensions that we've been feeling as a church at large, capital C, throughout some of the really difficult things that we're walking through in the last year and a half. And our challenge is to hold this already and not yet together. And I think this is exactly why. This is why I've backfilled all of this for us, okay? This backdrop is so important for us to understand. And I really do pray, my prayer all week is that this would be clear and not just like info dump, but that we'd be able to walk out those double doors this week and have a bigger but simultaneously more real and present view of the kingdom of God where we find ourselves. That's the hope of every generation. That's the call of the church in every generation is that we would be like crazy hopeful optimists about change and renewal. And it starts with us, so we're witnesses to it, but that we also wouldn't trust some of the other competing agendas for power and authority because only Jesus is king. 
And that we would go out with that tension and live that out. And that's exactly why Jesus spends so much time saying the kingdom of God is like. Because he already knows that you and I have an idea of what it's like. And if you remember in the parable series that we did last fall, Jesus does this. Most of the parables have to do with what? The kingdom of God. Because he's trying to give them like real handles on like, here's what the kingdom is like. Here's the principles of the kingdom. Here's how the kingdom shows up. And if you remember, uh, we'll see this actually later in Mark 4. Jesus drops a couple parables in. But he says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Everyone's like, oh. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, I wish it was like a sword or I wish it was like a moat around a castle with fire-breathing crocodiles or something, right? Like you, you think about all the things that you wish the kingdom of God was like. I wish it was a bulldozer and it would just like go through every, right? And, and, and he goes, a mustard seed. He picks the most unnoticeable, everyday, insignificant, ordinary thing that has the most remarkable impact. And he does that very, very intentionally. That the kingdom of God is actually found in the ordinary, everyday stuff of life. Yet, it has the power to change not just you and me, but the entire world with all of its social and political and ethical and moral and economic facets, amen? So important question for us, and then we'll respond to this. Important question. How do we, as the Western church, need to answer some of the issues and questions in our cultural moment? Because if you haven't noticed, things have changed pretty dramatically in the last 50 years, amen? And here's what's crazy about this. I did a lecture this week at a seminary on mission and culture, and it was really great because we looked at like global Christianity. Yet we have to understand that the Western, the cultural capital that we've enjoyed as a church in the West is unique. Like our, our wealth, our, our ethnic, like hom homogeneity culturally as the church in the West, uh, the kind of capital that we've had in culture, the fact that we've ever been the majority in the Western culture is unique. The global South and the global East have never enjoyed that, ever. They never enjoyed Christendom. Like they didn't have Constantine, we did, right? So from Constantine to about 50 years ago, we enjoyed kind of this strange blending of culture and us being the winners. Us being the majority, not the minority. Us being at home in culture, not strangers and exiles. But today we're not. The cultural ethic is so different than our biblical ethic. And it's such an important question for us to ask, how do we respond to this as exiles? How do we respond as the Western church to a radically different cultural ethic? We gotta ask this question and think very carefully. Every generation should be asking this question. You with me on that? Like, I know sometimes they're just like, well, let the millennials handle that one. It's like, no, no, you gotta answer it. I gotta answer it. Boomers have to answer this. Millennials have to answer it. Gen Z has to answer this. Every generation has to answer this. As faithful, present Christians in a culture that's different than us, how can we engage and answer some of the questions that culture is asking? How are Christians to live in the world, yet not like the world? We need to think deeply about this, especially today, about how do we translate the gospel that never changes, amen? The gospel never changes. How do we translate the never changing gospel into and deliver it into an ever changing culture? Anybody have real quick, easy answers? No, because these are deep, nuanced, complex, flesh and blood questions that we need to wrestle with. And I do think that it's overly simplistic and frankly lazy to say, wow, we just gotta preach the gospel. 
That's what we got to do. And you're like, yeah. But then you sit with somebody and you're like, Jesus died for your sins. And they don't know who Jesus is and they don't care. They don't know what sin is because they have no definition of sin. And they don't have any significance or backdrop for why the heck he died and what it means for him. So, so God, like, I think it's lazy. Like, it's just lazy. And I actually think it's, pr- it's pride. It's pride and fear that we just, just preach the gospel. And it's like, yeah, but that doesn't, that's disingenuous. We need to work far harder than that, amen? Like, 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 like that, that looks different than for my neighbor than it does for me getting up in, in a seminary class last week and lecturing. Like, every context changes. The, the never-changing power of the gospel and me delivering that, us being faithful, present witnesses to the power of the gospel in ever-changing cultural milieu. Amen? So let's think deep. Let's always reach. I'm telling you, let's always think deeply about this, okay? Let's duke it out. Let's wrestle it out. Let's talk through it. Let's dialogue respectfully, lovingly. But let's always ask this question. Let's never stop asking this question. Let's never just sit back and get lazy and and simplistic and passive and think that we don't, don't have to give any thought to how people should hear the gospel in our cultural moment. It's so important. I read a book this week as I was preparing for some of the lecturing I was doing by a guy called James Hunter. And his book is called How to Change the World, which is like, I want to read that, you know. Uh, <laughs> he gave some really, really good stuff because he just kind of studied Western culture. And he identified three ways that the Western church has tended to respond to cultural resistance, right? Cultural resistance to the gospel. Um, and he, he outlines three of the most common ones. The first was that we tend to get defensive against culture. So we either seek to dominate or like we get into kind of like a, we get our, our antlers kind of get locked into like a fight for the moral majority. And we want to just got to kind of be like the loudest voices at the tables in the halls of power. That's number one, defensive against culture. Number two, he identifies relevance to culture, right? So like culture is the goal. What happens when we try to make that the goal? Well, relevance to culture quickly becomes compromised with culture. With me on that? And just by the way, I know progressive churches like they look really cool like their jean jackets are awesome but like how many more leaders and progressive churches do we need to see just tank before we're like maybe not maybe we don't do that like I've been reading a lot of European research on the progressive church movement who just like again progressive Christians they just nuance themselves into an oblivion right everything so what do you mean so like it's it's trying to like nail water to the wall it's just like what are you why are you so squishy on everything like for goodness sake it's flubber. Remember that movie? Robin Williams is like flubber. It's just everywhere, right? The progressive church is dying at alarming rates in Europe right now because they tried to make culture the goal. They tried to make cool the goal. They tried to make relevant the goal. That's the second tendency that we have. The third is withdrawal from culture or purity from culture. So in this view, what happens is we end up viewing culture not as the goal or the target, but as an enemy. That the culture is the enemy, right? So we end up building a Christian subculture and like making stupid t-shirts and making bad movies and making bad music and right? <laughs> all sorts of stuff. Wearing WWJD bracelets. I repent. Been there, right? But we make a Christian subculture, right? We build really high walls around us and them, whoever them is, whoever we decide is them, right? So we build Christian ghettos and bunkers. And what happens in that view is that we end up failing obedience to the Great Commission, Amen. Because we're not actually called to with, withdraw from culture. We're actually called into it, but to be a faithful present, presence within it. We are in the world, but not of it qualitatively. And Jesus already promised us that he's overcome the world. So what are we afraid of? He's already overcome it. He's already king. 
That means all we're doing is going out and declaring something that is already supremely true. In every space we find ourselves, all we're doing is going into the domains that we find ourselves and declaring that Jesus is king because he already is over every square inch of it. Amen? We have nothing to be afraid of. So, what does Jesus' kingdom vision call us to? We're going long today, Reach. We're going long, baby. Happy Mother's Day. What is Jesus' kingdom vision? Well, I think his kingdom vision calls the church to a faithful presence. Not warring against culture or trying to dominate it. Not retreating from culture as if it's the enemy. And not compromising or being swallowed up by culture. But living both faithful and present. Now, do we nail this? Of course we don't. Of course we don't. But it is our call. But we are commanded to. I'm working right now on some stuff around how to understand the church as like monastic missionaries. That we'd live like as just weird monks and monkesses. I don't know if that's the real thing. But we'd live as like a monastic community that is so strange. Like our rhythms are strange. Our, what we do with our money is strange. What we do with our bodies and what we don't do with our bodies is strange and weird. And what we do with our time and energy and what we don't do on social media and what we do do. Like that would be so strange because we'd just be like these weird monks as a monastic community living by a completely different rule of life but we'd be missionaries because we're smack dab in the middle of culture. And I think what this looks like is holiness, amen? Like I know holiness right away, we're just like, we go like to purity culture or like purity rings, Jonas Brothers, or I don't know, whoever you like. <laughs> Never mind. Um, <laughs> I, I think that to live as monastic missionaries, it means prioritizing personal and communal holiness. We've talked about this a lot. Again, the Old Testament speaks about holiness very differently than we tend to. We tend to just think about holiness as moral categories of like, I do this, I don't do this. It's like, that's not it. Holiness is not legalism. Very different. Holiness is to be set apart. It's to be like no other around us. And properly understood biblically, I think that holiness is social distinction, ethical and moral distinction, but specifically it's non-conformity. You with me on that? But it's an engaged non-conformity. If you look through our scripture, this blows your mind. Go and look through the call of holiness and look at the purpose of holiness. The purpose of holiness in the Bible is mission. It's mission. Like, like God never shows up and be like, be holy, now let's get out of here. He's like, be holy because I'm holy and I'm sending you out into the nations. And the only way that the nations are gonna see that I'm good and holy and that I am a God like no other is if you obey me. And now, obey me, be holy, be non-conformists, be totally set apart and dis- distinct from anybody else around you, and now go and engage all the, all the conformists. All the ones who are just like waltzing around doing like, I guess we just do this. They're blind. They're blind, they're lost. That's why they're doing that. The purpose of holiness is not dis- disengagement. The purpose of holiness is never retreat. It's, it's never pulling away, but to be faithfully engaging to live life as engaged non-conformists, as a community of monastic missionaries, redeeming culture's wrong answers to some of the most important questions of life. But we can't answer questions if we're not present, amen? We can't speak into the lives of people if we're not with them, if we don't walk with them, talk with them, live among them and have proximity with them. And thank God we have a God who does that our God actually incarnates himself. He moves into the neighborhood so that he would know us and that we could know him. 
So what does holiness as exiles look like? Well, it means we're gonna be strange. If you're trying to fit in, Christianity is not for you. I'll just give you that one. If you're trying to be like, again, like relevant and be like, oh, look how progressive I am. Christianity is not your jam. So go wander around, enjoy progressive, progressivism and then come back when it didn't work. And we'll talk to you about it, all right? But being relevant and cool and this is not it. So what does it look like? What does holiness in the kingdom of God look like as strange exiles? Well, I think several things. It looks, for, it looks like fighting for sexual purity and self-control, self-control and restraint in a hypersexualized and pornified culture. I think it means fighting for humility and how we portray ourselves in person and online. Just stop being a jerk, like online and in person. Like, I mean, that's, that's, that's like non-conformity. Are you with me on that? Pursuing proximity and friendship with people who are very different than you. I think that's a big one. Not just living in echo chambers because it's easier. Prioritizing generosity over accumulation and materialism that constantly preaches at us. It means looking at life as mutual submission to one another rather than trying to clamor for attention and power and influence. It means resisting extreme binaries on everything that our culture does and living instead as peacemakers who wage war for peace, embracing complexity, embracing nuance and unity through difference. Like you imagine, imagine how weird we'd be if we like actually modeled this. We don't model this well, by the way. I'm not telling you this, like we're not nailing this at all. If you haven't noticed at all over the last year and a half. But if we started living like this, we would actually model what the kingdom of God looks like starting with you and me. And so much of the church treats money, materialism, and sexuality, and our bodies, and success, and the unborn, and family, and conflict, and social media, and politics, and I mean, I just keep going exactly the same way as the world does, and then we wonder why we have no power. Do you know why we don't have any power? Because there's no power in conformity, and there's no power in disengagement. We need to be engaged, and we need to be nonconformists in the midst of a culture who doesn't know the king. That's the kingdom of God. So what does Jesus promise? How can we respond to this? Well, Jesus promises to fuel his countercultural kingdom with very strange paradoxical power. Because if you remember the story, he doesn't show up and say, I have superior power of the same kind as the world, right? He doesn't say that. He shows up and he says, I have superior power that looks nothing like the coercive power of the world. He shows up and he redefines power altogether. By doing what? The all-powerful one renders himself powerless. Crazy. That rather than come to earth and sit on a throne, Jesus gets off his throne in the God space and comes and hangs on a cross. Rather than take a crown on earth, he takes his crown off and exchanges it for a crown of thorns here and now. Rather than demand service from subjects and assert his power over them, He comes and he lays his life down to empower everybody who comes and surrenders to him. It's radically upside down, radically paradoxical because worldly power church always coerces and bullies and ridicules and abuses. But power in the kingdom of God comes through self-giving love, a relinquishing of worldly and cultural forms of coercive power and violence. So if we wanted to have a flag If Jesus like walked around with a flag for the kingdom of God, his logo on the flag wouldn't be a sword 
wouldn't be a mace, not the wrapper or the spray, but like the weapon. If you don't know who the wrapper is, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> but on the flag of the kingdom of God, flying high over his people would be a cross. And that makes no earthly sense at all. <laughs> because a cross signals defeat. A cross signals death. A cross signals that you're a loser. But Jesus' resurrection comes and reverses all of that. So to us, it means something very different, amen? That the cross represents true power. That the cross actually represents a power that comes from somewhere else altogether. Because Jesus didn't stay on the cross. He actually defanged the power of death and the coercive powers over us by showing us that he has power over all things. So what does it mean for us, church? Well, it means for us that the kingdom of God is present everywhere that God's rule and reign is being done. That we can go and experience the kingdom of God this week. So the question that I would ask to all of us this week as we go, how much of our goals and plans and agenda really has nothing to do with God's rule and reign and will? What is under your rule right now within your purview, your part of the garden that needs to be brought under God's will and rule? Or how much of your life is really just your will getting done? Your rule getting done? Here's the good news. That the invitation to repent and trust in the good news that Jesus says right here is an invitation to give up our agenda and trust him for his. And that we can do that today. And the beautiful thing about this is that the time is still now, amen? That it is still near, that it is still available, that it is still within reach, that we can today really reflect and sit and respond and say, what is under my rule and reign? What is in my domain right now? Wherever I find myself, the highways and byways that I find myself, and how can I further bring that into and under the rule, the goodness and the will of God. And we still have time because the time is now and it's within reach. And this is good news. According to Jesus, we can enter into his kingdom. And for some of us, we need to do that today for the first time. Like actually verbalize it, actually say it, actually make, it, make that commitment, actually repent, turn away from the way we were going, turn away from the agendas that we had and trust him for his. Okay, so stand, let's do that now. We'll pray to that end and we'll sing to that end as we celebrate the victory that is wrapped up in the king and kingdom of Jesus. Father, we're so thankful that this is still a now reality, that this isn't just a utopian pipe dream for the future and it's not just something historically that happened in the past that is irrelevant to us as modern people, but that Jesus, you are king. I pray right now that we would all repent, that we would all turn away from ways that we've been going, that we would all put down agendas today and trust you for yours. And that you would take the transformative power and work of your kingdom and press it into our heart and that you would start with us right now. Us personally, but then us corporately as a church. That you would start right here and right now. And that you would make your kingdom power and life alive in us. And that you would work through us and as a result, Montreal would not be the same. That we would be faithfully engaged and faithfully present because we know you, we are of you and from you and you are sent for us to be heralds of this good news and proclaim the gospel. We love you and we ask that you would make it alive in us and through us today, right now. And we ask these things in the only name that matters. In Jesus' name, amen.